tell me, would you like to take one with you? A dog? When you see it, you will say yes. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we ultimately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 55 and we're back to Cole's choice. What did you choose this time? I chose my all-time favorite dog movie, Bonbon El Perro, by Carlos Sorin from 2004. It stars a cast of non-professional actors including Juan Villegas, Walter Donato, and Rosa Valsecchi, and, of course, the dog Gregorio. He plays Lechien. And later, Bonbon. He's a multifaceted dog. The dog of a thousand faces. The Lon Chaney of dogs. The story is about Juan, or Coco as he's known to his friends, who is a 52-year-old gas station attendant who has just lost his job after 20 years. After a chance encounter fixing a woman's car, he is given a dog that marks the beginning of an entirely new life for him. Now, I remember when you showed this to us at one of our movie nights. I don't think anyone, including me, had seen the film. It's a little hard to come by. I first saw it at Austin Film Society years ago. And to this day, it may be my favorite Austin Film Society discovery. Now, I want to say something to the listening audience who probably, by and large, have also not seen this. The thing that you told us, which is that you're going to have the feeling that something terrible might happen... (laughs) It doesn't. So if you're like me, and sometimes you can't stand the suspense, go watch this movie anyway, the first chance you get. In good conscience, never in a million years could I have shown this to an audience if I had known something happened to the dog, because no one would have forgiven me. Or to Coco. I couldn't go through this thinking that this sweet man with his beautiful smile was going to end up in some sort of a tragedy. I would probably have murdered you. Well, I want to talk about that because this movie is great for opening that discussion of how we've been taught to watch movies and what to expect. And that feeling populates this from the very opening scene. So let's just start there. We start with, appropriately enough, barking before we even see visuals. It's very much like the other Argentine film we did, La Cienega by Lucrecia Martel, where sound design happens before anything visual. In this opening scene, Juan is surrounded by a group of workmen, construction workers it seems like, to whom he is trying to sell his handmade knives. My first impression of him was, again, that warm, gentle, small smile of his that is so beautiful. I liked him immediately. Because you're not a monster. (laughs) He's the sweetest guy I may have ever seen. The sweetest, most humble, and modest protagonist a movie may have ever had which is one of the things that immediately makes us worry about him. We are so used to seeing characters like this exploited that immediately my defenses were up the first time I saw it. He's there in his threadbare cap and clothes, selling these knives that he takes great pride in. Not boasting, but he's obviously very gentle and thoughtful, and he's surrounded by men much larger than him, outnumbered if something goes wrong. And he's selling knives. There are weapons So based on what we've been taught to expect from a million other movies, this thing could go sideways in an instant and be a really dramatic, intense opening, and so I'm waiting, waiting, waiting for that. But these men treat him as a friend as well. They are there to admire more than buy. But at no point is anyone rude or hateful or pushy or loud with him. No, that is another great thing about it. It is just full of normal, mostly good-natured people trying to legitimately make their way as best they can. One of the first truly neo-realist touches that you think. There's nothing exaggerated about the good or the evil. It is just how things happen in the world as we make our way through it. Now, in these new circumstances, he is essentially traveling around trying to sell these knives, almost sort of a traveling salesman at a much lower level. And there's this next little bit here that it didn't really key into me the first time I watched it, nor the second time. And it was only after a couple of other flags went up that I finally put these clues together. This next section is as he is leaving, and he gets pulled over by the security guard for the area. 
another instance that I was waiting for him to be exploited and taken advantage of. Yes. And the security guard says, didn't you read the signs? No trespassing, private property, all that kind of stuff. Now, Coco says he doesn't have his ID on him. The guard notices his beautiful knives and a little bit of a low-level bribe mm-hmm. takes place. Very low-level. Nothing menacing, nothing threatening. Absolutely. And then he's on his way again. But I want you to remember that part about the signs. I'm going to come back to it later when it finally occurred to me what might be going on. Well, in the moment, did you think of it more as, oh, he's just sort of a daydreamer and making his way, not noticing, legitimately just missed? I thought more about how he's really not a hustler, but he does have to try to sell some knives. He's got to make a living. So if you can, you know, look around a sign... Sure. Then you will. So he takes off driving across the deserts of Patagonia to sell these wares. And that's one of the two most prominently featured landscapes in the film. Patagonia and his face. Which, strangely enough, one of the few reviews that I read from someone who didn't like this very much complained about how many close-ups there were. And how to them it made the film somewhat more ineffectual. Can you fathom that? Was that reviewer's last name Hitler? (laughs) Or maybe Putin? Voldemort Putin? I didn't catch the byline, but if I had to guess, probably so. That's a crazy person. Just a bit here about Patagonia, which was an entirely new region for me. I haven't seen it on film as far as I can recall. Mm -hmm. It's a very sparsely populated region at the very end of South America. It is a part of Argentina. Some people think of it as its own country. It's not. Like Texas, Very similar. You talked about the desert, and that is mostly what we see here. And I wanted to give a little bit of perspective about population. The largest city in the area's population is only a little over 300,000. And then a city that we see on a number of highway signs over the course of the film, Trelu, Its population is only 99,000. And I think of how key that landscape is, especially with something that Carlos Sorin said in an interview that I read, which was that in Patagonia, you can drive for 800 kilometers without seeing anyone. So that any story that happens there is inevitably tied to a journey. It's something that's very common for locals to do, travel without thinking about it. It also means that you meet people so infrequently as compared to city life that whenever you meet a stranger, it's almost an event. Well, you certainly get that feeling. This show is about the movies we love, and this is one that I love so much. Without it having to be a milestone, frequently we will talk about, quote, important, unquote, films, whereas this one is important to me purely on a personal level. One, I'm a dog person. Two, for things just like this, the landscape of this thing, I fell in love with immediately when I saw it the first time. That thing you say about driving 800 kilometers and not seeing another person sounds like heaven on earth to me. I watch him get in this car, especially with nothing but his dog by his side. And the movie really conveys that feeling that no matter which way you go, you have a long time just to drive and to think. It's very meditative. Even though he doesn't do extremely long takes of those actions, you can definitely feel that it could go on infinitely almost and would be very entertaining just as a travelogue, just to see the subtle changes in the landscape and these infrequent events where he does run into someone and it turns out to be incredibly consequential. And I think the flip side of that you see, for example, when he goes to the gas station that he used to work at, from which he's been fired, an old friend of his is still working there. And in those situations, there's no rush. You stop and you catch up with folks, and it doesn't matter how long it takes, you sit there and share those stories. He does specifically mention at one point in the future, time is what I have most of. We learn at this point that it looks like he had been living at the gas station as Will's working there. And his friend does tip him off to a potential job opportunity at a placement agency nearby. This employment agency is where we really get the first inkling that this is not his world anymore, that it might have passed him by a little bit, even though I suspect in Patagonia things don't move as quickly as they might in other places. He's still a little bit out of step, and several things are pointed out to us in a way that I really love. We find out some biographical details. He's been married, but he hasn't seen his wife for 20 years. 
we get the impression that his advancing age might be a problem with him finding other work. We find out that he's living with his daughter and her family. And as a result of finding out these things, we're also able to intuit other small details about him. He would like a space of his own. He would like to be independent. He wants to work. He wants to earn his keep. And as we guessed from the opening sequence, he's very patient. He's very humble. And we learn all of that in a way that unfolds much like the rest of the film. Nothing is exaggerated, and nothing is even really underlined. If you're not paying attention and you're not thinking about this man and who he is, you might miss these details. You might not put this two and two together if you're not paying close attention to what kind of a human being we are watching. A bit more about his living situation, which was one of the most poignant scenes for me. He says that he has no phone, so it's one of those situations that I think we've seen in probably our own personal lives. You have someone with really limited resources, so his only option is to say, can I just come here every day and check on any opportunities, and basically gets pushed aside for that. We then see him back with his daughter in this current living situation. She is screaming at her husband, who looks barely ambulatory. <laughs> Catatonic. Yes. She's trying to take care of her young children. We see Coco trying to fade into the background. That's the only way I can describe it, in his night clothes. The first time we don't see him really smiling or with no hint of a smile. He's fully aware of what an imposition he is. But again, none of it is spelled out in huge neon letters for you. This is probably not the greatest movie for people who aren't very good with nonverbal communication. You're having to read a whole lot in the face and the eyes of this character. When I watch him try to take up as little space as he possibly can, that's another one of those where I had to remind myself of what you told us. Okay, he's going to be okay, right? <laughs> and like you said... Even though I mentioned the daughter screaming at her husband to try to get some help, they're not having any kind of big argument. There's not any hostility in this relationship. It is just the reality of being in very reduced circumstances. It's another one of those touchstone facets of neorealism in that you've got stories that are focused on the poor and the working class. And so much of the drama comes from their economic and social circumstances. Now it's the next day and he's back on the road again. He makes a stop at yet another gas station, one of many that we'll see, because they're starting to pop up all through the region. In fact, I would say it's the type of business that we see most throughout the film. We see four or five of them versus one or two instances of anything else. But it makes sense, since you mentioned it's such a vast and wide open space, and so much of it is about the journey, about traveling from one part to another. You need these way stations. I've traveled extensively through the U.S., so have you. Same situation. Did you ever win a pair of cool sunglasses with a liter of oil like he did? Unfortunately, no, but my lucky day could be right around the corner. <laughs> and I want to talk about this scene. This was the first flag that went off in my brain that connected me back to that scene with the security guard. He's having a chat with a young woman who's the gas station attendant, and she says, yeah, we're having this promotion. Scratch off this card. You might win something. He does a little scratch off, and indicates to her, it says something here, which then I finally thought for the first time, oh, maybe he can't read. As with a number of other things, I love the subtlety of that detail. It dovetails nicely with one that's coming up here shortly with another young lady, where you see the slightest thing register on his face, in this case embarrassment, in the next case mortality, but it's underplayed so beautifully that, again, it doesn't draw huge attention to it. And further to what you've been saying, it, in another film, would be the exploitation point. Mm -hmm. It would be the moment where you realize, oh no, something terrible is going to hinge upon the fact that he possibly can't read. It's never confirmed for us at any point. There are just bits and clues along the way that, for me, build more of a character and make me understand what's at stake. But the movie doesn't hinge upon that great risk. And as you mentioned, he does win those awesome men in black sunglasses, which puts another smile on his face, which is great to see. It's not completely his lucky day, though. He does try again at another place, looking for a job. No dice. So he's back on the highway, and true to his good Samaritan nature, he pulls over to help a woman who is having car trouble. Which 
I guess, takes on a much larger significance now that you mentioned the huge size of this place and the fact that you might not see another person for hours at a time. So you can't afford to just leave someone be on the side of the road because they may not get help until the next day, potentially, in some cases. And if it was me on the side of the road, in another film, I would imagine, okay, here comes Wolf Creek, about to unfold. <laughs> but in this, I would think, oh, thank goodness, a lifeline, a neighbor. He tows her 150 kilometers back to her ranch, because all he has is time, like he mentions. And the detail that I mentioned just a second ago occurs in the car ride, when she is talking about her father, who has recently died. You see the briefest flicker across his face of this recognition that the man she is talking about is most likely my contemporary in age. And so how much time do I have if this is what's happened to this man? They don't linger on it. It doesn't last very long. It's a blink of an eye, but you see it. They get to the ranch where there's a tool shop. He fixes her car. He meets her mother, the matriarch of the place. You get the impression. Also very money conscious. And he essentially trades craft for craft. He has some of her delicious baked goods in exchange for what he does for a living. And during the conversation over tea and dessert, he's offered the opportunity to take a dock. The now-deceased husband, as it turns out, was a Renaissance man and or bored easily. You get the impression. And the last enterprise that he was about to embark upon before he died was that he wanted to start a kennel to raise Argentine dogos, one of the most beautiful dogs on the face of the earth. So let's get into a little bit about the breed before we meet our dog. Okay. The Argentine Dogo, also known as the Argentine Mastiff, so that gives you an idea of how large it is. They are white, muscular dogs, originally developed for the purpose of big game hunting, which is going to come up a little bit later. Now, the daughter and the mother have a little bit of an argument as to the purpose of the dog. I wanted to make it clear that these are really smart, capable dogs. Again, bred for hunting, but also they've been trained for search and rescue, police assistance, they're service dogs. I get the feeling that they probably share a similar reputation, maybe not quite as bad as pit bulls in the United States, but one of those things where the owner and how they treat it makes all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Their large size can be intimidating, and they are actually banned in a few countries. But they've been bred to be social with other dogs. They're well-suited in group environments. And so you can have them in farms, you can have them in housing developments, you can have them in yards. And their more aggressive traits have been specifically bred out. I guess the most important question is, when are we getting one? <laughs> Let's imagine if it had been you and I in that kitchen. What is going to be your sales pitch to me? to get the dog we have now, Gibson, our little Boston Terrier, who we now know is a serial killer. <laughs> How would you have convinced me to take this dog? I would have done it the exact same way she did it. When you see him, you'll say yes. That's the argument ender. When you see this beautiful dog, you will say yes. You got me. It's true. He's a handsome fellow. You didn't always feel that way, right? I would assume. Gibson is your first dog. Our dog that we have now had for about a year is your first dog. And you were never a dog person. You were much more of a cat person. Always. We had cats from the time that I was very young uh, through my adulthood. So you weren't big on dog movies either, I'm guessing? Was there not a lot of Benji and Lassie and all of that stuff in your childhood? Can't recall any of those. I did see Born Free and cried copiously. <laughs> But no, I, I there weren't a lot of dogs in my neighborhood, really. Not a lot of friends had dogs, so I wasn't around dogs that much. This is the saddest story I've ever heard. Every kid should have, well, every kid that wants a dog should have a dog. You know I love cats. My best friends. Always. Yeah, good luck with that if you're stuck down a well. <laughs> Gibson would just stand in at the top of the well and uh, throw his Kong directly at my face. Now that you say that, I do see some similarities in his behavior. I'm watching the series Hannibal for the first time. And if I had to put an animal in the place of Mads Mikkelsen, it would probably be our dog. If I come home and watch him reading that book, if he closes it shut <laughs> as I walk through the door, I will not be surprised. Now, the mother is still trying to convince him and says that she feels that he's really sad without anybody there to take care of him since 
her husband is gone. They always called him Le Chien, which in French is the dog, and that gets morphed into Le Chien. Your impeccable French pronunciation is technically correct, but they actually say Le Chien, which confused me in the beginning because I wasn't putting it together with the French thing for the dog. I thought it had more to do with leche and milk and his color than it had to do with mangling the word from another culture. Either way, I think it's really charming. It's become one word. So he takes the dog, against his better judgment, and brings him back to his daughter's house where he is just one more element of chaos trying to be crammed into this tiny household. First, though, we have to talk about that first view of him in the car riding in the passenger seat, he looks like he belongs there. That's the trick with this dog, and I assume other Argentine dogos. They look like they belong wherever they are. They have such charisma and such possession of themselves. Are you going to tell him to move? No. He looks like he belongs there more than we do. He owns the joint wherever he goes. This dog opens doors, as we are about to find out. He does have the breeding. We do know that. He's a champion. Now... Coco's daughter is furious. It's basically, you or the dog, you need to get out. And he has to make the decision that he's going to leave with the dog. The right decision. So now it's two for the road. And almost immediately, Le Chien is opening doors for him. He stops at a gas station, and a man driving by sees the dog and offers them a job as security. He's too sweet-natured to carry out his orders, ultimately, and loses that job, but in the sweetest, nicest way possible when he abandons his post. And really, it's all to help a fellow human being. This consistency of character truly appeals to me. I never, ever have reason to doubt who he is or what decision he's going to make. It's very much one of those things where you don't tell a person who you are. You show them who you are time and time again. And clearly, he demonstrates he's the sort of person who will not hurt another human being who is in the same circumstance or even worse than he is. He's never going to step on another person in order to get ahead. Thank you for mentioning that, because I was struggling with the one element of neo-realism, and I thought, "Eh, it doesn't quite fit for that. It's pretty codified as far as what characteristics make up a neo-realist film. And the one that stuck out for me was that there was a political commitment to progressive social change. And I kept thinking about it and thinking about it, and I could not come up with anything that was grand enough that fit that description. And now you just made me realize, like everything else in the movie, it is subtle and low-key. And it is his behavior in those circumstances, time and time again, that is very much political. What could be more truly political than absolute empathy with every other human being you come across. What could be more progressive an idea than I understand you because we are all humans and I'm going to treat you as I would want to be treated? And only just now did you make me realize that. The other place that that really occurs to me is coming right up. Okay. He goes to the bank to try to get some money. His severance pay. And the security guard outside the bank tells him he can't come in with a dog. Makes sense. And so while Coco is trying to tie up the dog and ask if the security guard will just keep an eye on him for a moment while he goes in, a manager of the bank comes by and is admiring the dog in a really negative way to me. He's handling him, he's showing his teeth, he's patting him around. It's judge behavior, as if he's at a dog show, but he's treating him more like a commodity than a companion. It's a sense of invasive ownership almost to me that I'm thinking of the dog as my buddy, Mm. and this guy is treating the dog as an it. And this bank manager, in the way that he has, because he has this sense of superiority and he's a higher position, he essentially waves away the security guard and says, no, come on in the bank with the dog. And there's that look on the guard's face, that sense of a little bit of humiliation that I read in there that... What does it matter what I say if this guy's just going to walk around Mm -hmm. me like that and treat me like nothing? Doesn't he also pop back out right then and ask the security guard to do something with his car in a sort of dismissive fashion? Everybody is my employee, I guess, or my servant almost. So we know who is us and we know who is them. But it's a small moment. We don't really come back to that. Mm -hmm. The important point here is that this bank manager puts Coco in touch with a potential trainer for the dog because he's telling him 
what a champion he really is and how beautiful he is and how so much could be done with him. Now, thankfully, Lechien pays him back by peeing on the floor, <laughs> which is wonderful. It's one of the very few instances that I would let a joke that easy and that lowbrow slide in this case. The best part is Coco trying to slide the chair around. <laughs> to cover it. Yeah, it's pretty good. And now we meet Walter. Walter is the trainer that he puts him in touch with. Walter's a little bit of a blowhard, a little bit self-aggrandizing. And just to note, this is actually what Walter does in real life. His name is actually Walter, and he is actually an animal wrangler. Oh, I didn't realize that. So it's a brilliant part of casting on Serene's part if Walter Donato is not truly like this in real life. He got an incredible performance just to convey exactly the right feeling out of a non-professional. Or he knew that's what Walter was and stuck him in there. Which, which do you imagine, actually? I'm going to say the latter, because you don't get into the dog show business for subtlety. That's <laughs> true. We also meet Walter's wife and daughter, and in the first little bit of performance anxiety... The little girl is set to do a recitation coming up, but she's been so nervous she's losing her voice. Again, another perfect piece of characterization. Juan is a calming influence, but it doesn't go over into sitcom territory where, thanks to him being there and comforting the young girl, all of a sudden she can perform perfectly. She still croaks it out and still has a mini argument with her mother, but you can tell that he settles her somewhat. Now, to my mind, all of this starts to move really quickly. Walter immediately says, this dog is going to make us rich. There's a show coming up in a week. Let's get ready. It's all a little overwhelming for Juan, I get the impression, throughout this second act. But I love how it seems to me like he never completely buys in. He leaves that part to Walter. He leaves all the excitement and the machinations and preparation. He leaves the hype to him. And his expectations and desires seem to stay at that same modest, low level that intuitively he seems to share with the dog, in fact. It seems like they are very much on each other's wavelength when it comes to that. Eh, if I turn out to be a champion, that's great. But I'm just as happy riding around in the truck together for the next 40 years. And coming up here, there's another little bit of performance anxiety when they take him out to show the president of the association, and some of the other friends in the circuit. And there are a lot of other dogs there. Lucian doesn't want to come out of the back of the car. And when Coco gets essentially pressed into trying to pull him out, Lucian bites him. And it's clear he won't be moved until he's ready to be moved. <laughs> he draws blood, in fact. And this is sort of a badge of honor among these men. You are not a true dog owner until you have scars. And there's one little other moment coming up here that was, again, setting off that flag of, oh, something terrible going to happen. When Walter is showing him around the space that he's going to basically sleep in while they're training, he lets him let Lechian off of his rope and sort of wander around. And I immediately thought, is he going to escape? No, he's not. What is it that the movies have done to us that we expect the worst at every turn when it comes to this stuff? Is it just because it's a dog movie? If there was no dog involved, would you be as tense about this? If it was a four-year-old, I would assume that the next scene would be them falling into a pool. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a lifetime of being trained, it seems like. But is that by American movies? Or is that because... The international market follows what Hollywood does for so many years, and therefore they take on those hallmarks as well. What is it that we have been watching, each of us, for 40-plus years now that makes us think? Have we been shown that many things going wrong? I guess conflict is what generates drama. Is there anything else that accounts for us just assuming tragedy will strike at any moment? I think you answered the question already. It's what we've been fed. It's what we grew up on. And especially, I think, our generation as well. Maybe more so mine slightly, having that little bit of an age difference. Growing up with those after-school specials, <laughs> that stuff made an impact. That's true. But at any rate, no tragedy is occurring. And Lichian takes to his training really well. Trotting, stopping, going, napping. So they're at their first show. And they win. They win their category, and they win third best in show, with only the most minimal training. What I like most about this scene is that it's so clear 
that Walter does not have the same rapport with the dog as Coco does, because you can see him trying to get Lichien to keep his head up and move him around. He has to physically move him, whereas he and Coco seem to be much more in sync. And I like the most that when they're doing the winner's photo, Walter tries to hijack the picture, but isn't quite successful. He wants to relive some of that Miami glory. He does. And that smile on Coco's face. His smile is back. So before the engraving can even hit the trophy, Walter is on the phone trying to arrange stud services to take advantage of their win and what I'm sure he imagines to be Lechian's now legendary reputation that's already circulating among the other dog owners. They go out for a celebratory dinner, and we meet Susanna, the singer which will develop a slight love interest in Coco, and in a characteristically Walter moment, he is grabbing the spotlight a little bit for himself, gets too rowdy, and gets booted from the restaurant and taken down to the magistrate. I really like that very small-scale minor romance that Coco has. He's clearly taken with Susanna, and they have a lovely little conversation. She tells his fortune from coffee grounds, actually, and he is sweet enough to not say, you're a kook. (laughs) Well, she's very kind. She's very gentle. Also, the stakes are very small. She had come back from a brief time living in Buenos Aires to come take care of her family. She was also a dog owner, and she had to leave her dog behind when she moved. So I like seeing people who are a bit older, definitely Coco, having this opportunity to make this sort of connection in their own way. And I like again that the movie doesn't undercut that. It doesn't make him a source of pity for Susanna, nor she for him. They're both a little cast adrift at this point. And they connect to each other in a very small way. But ultimately sincere and believable, you feel like? I think so, definitely. I like the idea of traveling around and making new friends. I think this may be the point where I kind of eased up and realized, okay, something terrible might not happen. Serene has been devoted to their humanity and their dignity for so long that it would be such a cruel reversal to do something else. I have to have faith that it's going to continue. And again, in true fashion, it's Coco who goes to the magistrate to try to plead Walter's case a bit. And I think he would have gotten away with it if Walter would just learn to shut his dumb mouth. (laughs) But he doesn't succeed in getting Walter out of his situation for the moment. So it's Coco who has to take over this appointment to go meet the other dog owner who is looking for the stud service. It doesn't go well. Let you in. Bonbon is not into it. Do you think this is supposed to parallel anything to do with Coco's libido at this point? Do you think it kind of dovetails with where he is in his life as an older man? You know, I really didn't think about it, especially when you have the scenes before where he is clearly interested in this woman, but it doesn't get physical. Right. It's a friendship thing, like you mentioned. It doesn't feel extremely erotic by any means. He is, though, clearly taken with her. There's something that he's attracted to physically. He mentions she reminds him of a girlfriend he had many, many years Mm, ago. So I don't think it's asexual. Just been long dormant, maybe? Probably. Also, this owner of the female dog, Pamela, this guy is a scumbag. He looks like a (laughs) Kevin Corrigan character. (laughs) He does. He's the Argentine Kevin Corrigan. No offense to Kevin Corrigan, who's great. Oh, I love him. But yes, it is very much that guy. When he's not doing this, he's making fake IDs for somebody. Totally. At any rate, it's definitely Lechien whose libido is slowing down. There's nothing wrong with that. He just may not be interested anymore. Now, Walter keeps wanting to try to push the situation. Let's get him an experienced female dog who will teach him the ropes. Strike two. And eventually they take him to the vet, and the vet says, mm, this may be the end of that for him. He may just only be good for being a domestic dog, a companion dog. So these dreams of riches that Walter had dancing in his eyes are going up in smoke. Walter's not entirely ready to let the dream die, and so the plan is that they are going to split up for a while. Walter will take the dog and continue to work and train and try to breed him, but while it's not generating any income, Coco is going to go back to whatever it was that he was doing before to try to continue to make a living. I was a little disturbed and a little upset the first time I saw this with Coco's willingness to just part with the dog. 
it didn't entirely make sense to me. I get it that he's an easygoing guy, he's non-confrontational. Economics probably drive a large part of that decision. Was there anything else in it that you saw? I'm with you. I wasn't hugely in favor of this, but when you see his little money roll that has Mm. progressively gotten slimmer and slimmer, I'm thinking back way too earlier in the film when his daughter is essentially berating him for not finding another gas station job when he just basically smiles to her and we know he's asked every place that he's gone and he continues to ask trying to explain what it is that I'm doing all day long every day to try to earn a living and it's just not working so far. I think also about all of the decisions or lack thereof that have gotten him to this point he basically said okay to taking the dog because someone offered it He said okay to training the dog, and then he said okay again when Walter reasonably suggested, maybe you need to go find a job, we'll keep doing this, and I took him at his word that it wouldn't be forever. Because so far we've just been going day to day, really, to see how things are going, and I assumed it would just keep going like that. And it hasn't even been that long, I realize. It feels like in the movie, maybe they've been working at this for months. I have to remind myself, no, this has only been a couple of weeks since the dog entered his life. So maybe it's not as drastic as it feels like to me, but it is drastic because you are giving up your dog. There is nothing to, (laughs) there is nothing that fills up a dog-shaped hole in your heart, period. And it's especially terrible when we see that Lucien gets put into the luggage compartment in the Mm. bus. Mm. It's awful. But anyway, now Coco is back to wandering, and we see that moment of him on the side of the road as the sun's going down, eating a little bit of cake by himself. It's both terribly lonely and terribly satisfying at the same time. I didn't feel terrible for him, but maybe that's only because I'd seen it before. I can't recall now what I thought the first time, if I felt like he was completely bereft at that point, and all he had between him and Oblivion was that tiny cake. His smile is not there. That's true. I will tell you that. That's true. Yeah. Now he's finished the special puma head knife that he's made, and he drives back and gives it to his friend Susanna, the singer. This is when she tells the story that, of course, would motivate anyone to turn right back around and go after the dog. She talks about how she had to leave her little dog behind, and that dog got so sad and lonely for her that it got sick and died. So (laughs) that's when the teacup would have been rattling behind me, and you'd see my hole shaped through the door. One thing I want to mention about the knife, before I forget, before we go on. He's been working on that the whole time. Throughout the movie, we've seen little glimpses of him carving it and shaping it, and a lot of care has gone into it. And so it's a very significant gift for him to give her, and I trust that she will take good care of it. I ended up being so glad that he did not sell that to someone else, that she was the one who received that instead. So he is on his way back to Walter's, back to get his dog. And of course, the bad thing has happened because Lechien has escaped. When I showed this to you the first time, did your stomach drop out right here? Absolutely. (laughs) Did I ask you how much longer was left so that I would know, are we going to resolve this right now? Or did I ask you just to tell me what was going to happen? Even knowing that it's going to turn out okay, momentarily you still just feel sick when you know that there's a potential that his dog may be gone forever. Especially when you learn from every single passerby that there's a roving band of people who steal and eat dogs. (laughs) It's basically Mad Max, the wasteland out here. Yeah. He's on foot looking for the dog. He gets pointed in various directions. Yeah, I think we saw him over here. I think he's over at this brick factory. And he starts to call for him and he's listening and listening. And we hear a little bit of his characteristic moans and howls. So we're still wondering, is he wounded? Is he going to make it? What is he going to find? What shape is the dog going to be in when he turns this corner? And when at last we see Lechian, he is furiously humping (laughs) another dog and all is well. It is the greatest coming of age story of our time. (laughs) I usually say I hate coming of age stories. In this case, in Lechian's case, I don't mind. I also enjoy that that's not quite the end. Mm -hmm. There's a nice little denouement as well. It's two for the road again. They're back on the road and they pick up a young couple who is hitchhiking. 
And while one of the hitchhikers is asleep and Lichian is happily in the back seat, Coco has a lovely little warm conversation with the young woman. And this is when he's talking about exhibiting dogs and his new trade. Basically, everyone is on the road to a better tomorrow. The end. So everyone is reunited, and we assume, based on everything we've seen so far, happily ever after is how this goes. Is this a little too sentimental for you? You are asking the wrong person that question. (laughs) No, it's not. Question number two. Do you think he actually continued to exhibit the dog, or they just went on having all kinds of other adventures? I can imagine a reality in which there is a once in a while low level dog show stuff that they stick with their little local circuit there and it kind of eventually peters out a little bit and then they continue to roam the countryside selling knives together and set up sort of a show and Lichian is there on the side (laughs) and becomes his mascot and we just go from there. My assumption was that they never competed again and somehow... They survive and thrive, and the rest of it went as unexpectedly as the last two weeks went. This dog is his talisman that just continues to open a series of unexpected doors. Susanna does mention earlier she thinks he's going to get a piece of land at some point for himself. I could see that happening. Sure. Home base is always good, but I prefer to see them in the car together. Okay. One last add-on with that. I think you would only like it more if he was wearing goggles when they were in the car. (laughs) If he was in a sidecar with goggles, they traded in the truck for a motorcycle. Yeah, that might be a little better. Okay. Now, after all of this, have we explained why you chose it? For the most part. Why I chose it, ultimately, to demonstrate that I am not a human monster. Good point. Because it really is full of things that I typically shun. It's a little slight, I admit, Nothing earth-shattering in it. There's no huge revelation. It's just very sweet and true. It's unrelentingly optimistic. You know, I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not cheap and obvious and lazy. That's what I really love about it. It's well aware of exactly what kind of story it is and sticks to that. And its performers and the execution of the story mirror that modesty as well. Plus the dog, of course. I'm a sucker for that. Authenticity is the watchword, basically. And I think the one thing that we didn't mention that would be a huge reason I chose it and a reason that I love Coco so much, his willingness to endure. And the other thing I like in terms of cinema history is where it fits into the spectrum of neorealism. Obviously, Italian neorealism just post-World War II is the big movement when it comes to that. But I like the fact that you can feel that movement's echoes down through the decades into something like this, into my recommendation that I'm going to have here shortly, because I think that the average moviegoer may not understand or appreciate just how influential a movement that was. People that listen to this show, probably a little more cinematically inclined, the cinephiles in the group, are, I'm sure, well aware of that movement and its influences. But the little things that we don't even think about anymore, that aren't innovative now in 2017 that we just take for granted. Documentary-style photography when telling these stories, shooting on location instead of things being set-bound and studio-bound, the thing I mentioned about stories of the working class, using non-professional actors. Andre Bazan basically broke it down, saying that it portrays truth, naturalness, authenticity, and a cinema of duration. And I feel that branching out into so many things I love, both of that time period and on down the line, But without Italian neorealism as a starting point, you don't have a movie like this. You don't have John Cassavetes, for instance. You don't have the parallel cinema movement in India that gave us the Apu trilogy. You don't have the French New Wave. You don't have the Polish film school with Vajda and all of his contemporaries. It was really this huge seismic shift that opened the door to a more modern cinema, not rooted in the style of classical filmmaking, especially out of Hollywood. So in addition to the film's modest charms, I really do like to think of it as part of this huge movement that continues to ripple on down through the years after all this time. I think that means we really need to watch his earlier film, Historias Minimas. Definitely. As a matter of fact, thanks to the gentleman at Fuds on Film for recommending that. When I mentioned we were doing this, they said, oh, if you like this, you'll like that as well. I ordered it that day. It just came 
So I'm really looking forward to getting to watch that. So speaking of recommendations, <laughs> how about yours? Because you're not recommending Historius. That's a nice segue. Thank you. My recommendation is another dog film very much in the neo-realist tradition. And I'm going to recommend Wendy and Lucy from 2008, directed by Kelly Reichardt, one of my absolute favorites. It stars Michelle Williams and Will Patton and Lucy the dog. And it's about a young woman who is on her way to Alaska to find work. She becomes stranded in Oregon when her car breaks down. One day she attempts to shoplift dog food and is caught. And once released, she has discovered that Lucy has gone missing. And she has to go and try to find her. We tend not to spoil the recommendations the same way we spoil the movies since... These are kind of a surprise to people and they don't know what to expect. I'm going to ask you off episode what happens because I won't watch it until I know. I'm not going to tell you. No, you are. (laughs) I'll say this. I cried my goddamn eyes out. Oh, fuck. Okay. So if that tells you anything, I can't watch this movie on a day when I'm feeling particularly vulnerable. It's a tough one in that regard. I will say this. Dog doesn't die. I'll let you know at least that much. It's not making me feel much better right now. (laughs) Okay. I have a ton of pictures of you and Gibson, unbeknownst to you, sleeping on the couch. Oh, I know you've got those. Okay. I look at them when I need a little pick-me-up, too. So I guess that's what I'm going to go do and hug his little warm body right after we're done with this. What about you? What's your recommendation? How about something uplifting? You've got something that'll make, make us feel a little better? I do, I think. Okay. Mine was inspired by that pervasive feeling from this that something bad is surely going to happen. We remarked upon it after we saw this, as did others. So I chose Boyhood from 2014, which I fully intend to do an episode on because it was life-changing for me. There were so many moments in this film that I thought, it's going to go down this very, very dark path, and it just didn't because Life doesn't always do that. Written and directed by Richard Linkletter, filmed over a huge period of time as we know, an amazing feat, with Ellery Coltrane, Patricia Arquette, and Ethan Hawke. And it's simply about the life of Mason, from his childhood to his entry into college. When I was thinking about what I wanted to recommend, that was the emotion that occurred to me. And I couldn't think of anything in recent or distant memory that caused that same feeling. It definitely has that feeling in more than one place. You could basically sum the whole movie up by, you know that feeling you get when a camera is shooting the driver from the passenger seat, looking out the driver's side window, and you're just waiting for that car to be T-boned? Boyhood is three hours of that feeling, almost. With a lot of joy. Oh, absolutely. But the tension... Just waiting for what is going to go horribly wrong is palpable. And then I'm recalled to that moment, especially when they are very young and they go to the bookstore for the newest Harry Potter Mm -hmm. and they're wearing their outfits. That sense of pure joy as well. There are so many moments of that. And I think of Coco's face and those two were linked that way in my mind. Completely unrelated to this. Did you see that Ethan Hawke? teased that there is possibly another before trilogy installment on the way i did not so it may be a tetralogy before too long wonderful i could take a dodecahedra trilogy (laughs) or whatever too but anyway two great recommendations wendy and lucy and boyhood and that brings us to the end of episode 55 Right off the bat, we want to say an extra special thanks to everyone who has joined as a patreon donor this week Laura Cannon, Brent Hosler, and Rebecca Beagle. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. If you have not taken a look at what we have to offer over there, you can just go to patreon.com magiclantern. There are all kinds of perks. Starting at the $5 level, you can get access to our bonus mini episodes. If you would like to contribute to the show that way, we are certainly grateful to everyone that does. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast in any of those venues. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Travis Trudell, Andy Wolverton, Tim and Leon at the Yagaday Podcast, Allie and Adam at So That's How It Ends and the fine gentleman over at Fuds on Film. 
We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. If you would like to leave us a review or rating via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. Hey, now, wait a second. We almost got to the end and I forgot. Yeah. Now, this is where I normally say, and thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast, but what I really want to say is thank you so much on the second anniversary of our podcast for listening. That's right. We started on August 8th of 2015. That was when we published our Rebecca episode, and it has been two years now that we've been doing the show. How's the last year been for you? Pretty darn good. I would say 55 episodes and you never looked better. <laughs> Thanks. I could say the same to you. It has been great fun. And my only regret is we don't have all the time and money in the world to do this every single day. My second regret is that you don't let me mention 20 films in each episode <laughs> so that I could constantly cheat. I was tempted to work 10 million recommendations into this one. For instance, Umberto D. Ooh, sly. Yeah, got it in just under the wire. Anyway, thanks everyone for the support for the last two years. The show continues to exponentially grow and we get to do more fun things all the time. It just gets better and better all the time. And our community of listeners is really fantastic. So thanks. My favorite part is and continues to be when folks get in touch with us and say that they just saw the film that we talked about, especially for the first time. And I can't wait to hear people after they're able to get to Bonbon. Yeah, I anticipate there will be a lot of first-time viewers for this one if they decide to go out and track it down. So what do you think about doing 55 more of these? I'll do at least twice as many. It's a deal. You want to say goodnight, Gracie? I will. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 